Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a question and answer segment with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Dr. David Field. Peter Lightheart will begin by giving an update on James Jordan, our scholar-in-residence, and then they will discuss questions dealing with a theology of laughter, the relationship of the body to the temple, and Theopolitan homiletics. To submit a question to be answered in upcoming episodes of the podcast, we have set up a Curious Cat account, which you can find a link to in the show notes. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by listening in on these answers to these questions. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, uh, who's coming to us from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK, and also here with David Field, who is visiting Birmingham, coming through Birmingham uh, on his way to visit family out in Idaho. David, it's wonderful to have you with us again. Thank you. We've been joking about the last time you were on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, we tried to uh, record you while you were back home in Oxford, and uh, a friend said that you sounded like you were being interviewed while in a sinking submarine. <laughs> so uh, we're hoping that uh, your voice comes through clear, and uh, it's wonderful to see you and wonderful to have you with us this week. Thank you. Today we're doing something different uh, than we've done in previous podcasts. Uh, some time ago, we set up a Curious Cat account. I don't know anything about Curious Cat, but this is uh, a way for listeners to pose questions to us. Uh, listeners apparently know what the Curious Cat is because they've submitted questions and we've assembled some of those questions that we're going to address those in this episode. If you're interested in submitting a question, uh, please do get on the Curious Cat website and look for Theopolis. Uh, Brian Motes is, uh, by the time you're hearing this on the podcast, he will have already explained to you how you submit a question. Uh, so refer back to that introduction that will be added later. Uh, and you can find out how to submit a question. Um, uh, we're trying to answer a number of questions here today, uh, most of them about theological or biblical topics that have been posed to us. We do reserve the right to answer the questions that we want to answer and to ignore questions that we don't want to answer. Uh, just uh, don't think because you've submitted a, a question that is going to be answered. We'll try to answer as many as we can. Uh, somebody did ask a question about uh, Jim Jordan's health, and I wanted to begin with that. As many of you know, Jim is, uh, uh, helped start Theopolis. He's the inspiration for Theopolis uh, with his work at Biblical Horizons. From the early 90s uh, through just this year, he, earlier this year, he closed down his ministry at Biblical Horizons. But his biblical work and his work on liturgy was the inspiration for us to start Theopolis, and he was on faculty as a, a scholar-in-residence from the beginning. Um, a year and a half ago or so, he had a couple of strokes and uh, Jim is still recovering from those strokes. And uh, he's physically, he's still unsteady. He was, he's no longer walking with a walker as he was for a number of months after his original strokes. He, he does walk with a cane and he's sometimes unsteady on his feet. Uh, I don't believe that he's had any serious falls of late. Uh, so that's an improvement. His, his balance has improved. Uh, for uh, a, a number of months after the strokes, he was having difficulty speaking. 
uh, the language part of his brain was affected by the strokes and he was having trouble uh, uh, naming things, even things that were in front of him that he recognized. He couldn't find the right word to name them. And he was having trouble carrying on a conversation. And uh, over the last six or nine months, that's improved uh, significantly. He's able to participate in Theopolis courses. He's able to be in social settings. He's been attending church regularly uh, and carry on a conversation. Uh, he's still weak, and he's unfortunately not in a position even yet to uh, teach a course or to write. Uh, we're looking for ways to um, involve him in in our work at Theopolis in ways that he can handle. Um, there's a vast amount of his his own material that we'd like to make more accessible, things that he wrote that have been published only in photocopied form that we'd like to get into more accessible and, and into a, a, a finished published form. And we think that Jim can help us with those kinds of things. Uh, we, we still hope to finish the Psalter project that he started, the translations and the t chant tunes. And uh, that's something we hope that Jim at least can be involved in in some kind of uh, advisory capacity if he can't be doing the translations and, and arrangements himself. So we're looking for ways to continue to have him involved at Theopolis. Uh, but unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't look like he'll be able to get back to teaching and writing in the near future, at least. So uh, please keep Jim and his wife, Brenda, in your prayers. Brenda has been fighting cancer for a decade and a half or more. Uh, she's remarkably resilient, cheerful, energetic. Uh, she's been Jim's caregiver, primary caregiver since his strokes, and has been just uh, quite astonishing in her ability and her willingness to to help Jim. So uh, keep her keep her also in your in your prayers. Uh, and uh, it'd be wonderful if Jim could make a, a major recovery and be able to rejoin us at the podcast and rejoin us in the work that we do in a more significant way. So I wanted to get to the first question, which has to do with uh, the theme of laughter in the book of Genesis. And the question is posed this way. What is the significance of laughter in Genesis, Isaac, which means he laughs or he will laugh, and Rebekah are discovered as married because Abimelech looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Ishmael sent away because he's laughing, uh, and so on. So the question has to do with that particular theme in the book of Genesis. And just to fill out the, the details of that, uh, the questioner gives us a couple of uh, uh, data points on the uh, from Genesis, Isaac's name means laughter. As the questioner question says, the, uh, the, the verb that's used when Abimelech sees Isaac uh, with Re Rebecca. Rebecca has been presented as his sister, and he sees Abimelech sees Isaac sporting or laughing with Rebecca. The background of that theme begins before Isaac's birth, of course, with the Lord's promise to Abraham, aged Abraham, that he will have a child. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs and asks, how can a uh, an old man like me have a have a child. When the Lord visits Abram and Sarah at their tent and they have a meal together, again the Lord promises a future son from Rebecca, and Rebecca is watching from the tent door and laughs about that promise. Uh, and then when Isaac is born, he's given the name Laughter, but it's been prepared by these responses from uh, Isaac's parents. The identification of the the meaning of the name in uh, Genesis 21 was when Isaac is born, I think does give us a hint of what 
uh, of what the significance of the theme is. Uh, uh, Sarah's laughter seems a little bit skeptical. The Lord maybe uh, mildly rebukes her for her laughing. She denies that she's la- that she laughed. Abram's laughter seems to be a laughter of wonder and the laughter of astonishment that the Lord would promise him this. And when when they name Isaac, the name is given, it's said, because so that others will laugh with me. So Sarah sees this as a as a cause of joyful laughter when others see that uh, she, as an old woman with an old husband, have a have a child in their old age. It'll look like a joke. She's laughing in joy that she's finally had uh, had her child, and others will laugh along with her. So Isaac's name uh, signifies that uh, that uh, infectious laughter that comes on the uh, as a result of this um, as a result of this miracle birth. More generally, throughout Genesis, I think we see a series of occasions where there are uses of someone's name in a way that gives a particular symbolic significance to it and explores some of that in um, literary tricks within the text. For instance, if we're reading the story of of Esau and Jacob, Esau is deceived concerning the red, red thing that he wants to eat, the stew that Jacob is preparing. And then immediately after that, he's called Edom. He's associated with the color red and he's deceived with the color red. And we have a similar thing with Laban, with the white strips from the white tree revealing the white beneath. And again, it's related to Laban's name. And when we're talking about the character of Jacob, the or the character of Isaac. Isaac brings laughter. Isaac is associated with laughter. And his status very much depends upon removing the other character who's laughing. The character who, when Ishmael is laughing, he's presenting a threat to Isaac in some sense. He is Isaacing in a way that presents him as a potential rival to the status that should be Isaac's alone. And so the names within the book of Genesis are very important to pay attention to what's going on there, because often there is part of the meaning of the text is given to us within those details. When you think about uh, simply the phenomenon of laughter, then we'll bring various experiences and thoughts to our readings of those Genesis texts. And we know that in general human experience, then laughter often is experienced or arises when there is a a major disjunction. I think it was, I never know how to pronounce his name, Arthur Kerstler, Kerstler? Anyway, um, who talked about laughter in relation to the bisociation of ideas, that a line is running uh, along and you expect it to continue in the direction that's already been set, but then something breaks uh, into it or across it. And that can be the relief of a threat, um, or it can be uh, the emergence of a whole new um, uh, datum in a story. Uh, Of course, it can be uh, a dignified old person walking along and tripping over a, a curb. Um, But that idea of bisociation of ideas, when you bring that, when you bring also the use of laughter um, as a a defense, uh, as a mode of denial, that 
if, <laughs> if, for example, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. If you were to uh, praise me, then probably because I'm uncomfortable with praise, what would happen would be I would acknowledge that, I'd say a thank you, and then either uh, laugh or find something to laugh about. So laughter as... Self-deprecating. Self-deprecating, yes. yes. Laughter as, as um, uh, indicating disjunction, laughter as a, a defense, a denial, um, and you might see something of that in Sarah's response. Uh, Laughter as well, um, uh, thirdly, as the relief. So we, we think of, of laughter actually as a good place for our energies to go um, because it's, it's a lot better than some of the other places they could go, sort of psychologically. And so laughter as, as a relief, and again, you get that um, mm. in well, Abraham's actual naming mm. of Isaac. I don't know, uh, I'm sure there are theological dimensions to that disjunction and that denial and that relief. Mm. How far they play into the Genesis texts, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the disjunction makes sense to me from uh, when you look at other occasions of laughter in Scripture. One of the memorable ones is Psalm 126, when the Lord brought again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that, them that dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. This is return from exile. And it's the disjunction that you're talking about where you have a, a storyline going in one direction, then suddenly lurches in the other direction. It's the, it's, dis, it's the disjunction, but also the relief. Those two are combined there, which I think that's a resurrection for Israel. They're coming back from death in exile. And laughter is the... The, the sound of life as they return. I think that the, that um, that would uh, link up with what's going on in the Genesis narratives because Abraham and Sarah, uh, the the fact that they give birth to Isaac is life from the dead. This is, as Paul says, uh, Abraham's body is as good as dead. Sarah's womb is barren. And there's the laughter of new life. There's the laughter of the surprise. Another twist on that, um, Psalm 2 is another famous instance of laughter and there's several psalms that, that fit with that. Uh, when the Lord responds to the raging nations by laughing at them, Psalm 37 talks about the Lord's laughter because he sees the end of the wicked. We can't see the end of the wicked. Uh, and so we respond with fear or anxiety if the wicked rise. The Lord can see their end, and he can see that they're walking toward the edge of a cliff. You know, the, the pratfall is coming, and he sees it coming. And so there's this, again, there's this disjunction, which could also be, you know, the Lord's laughter is a laughter of derision at their folly. It's a laughter uh, able to see where they're heading. For the people of God, that's also going to be laughter of relief, because when the wicked, when the Lord uh, deals with the wicked, then he releases and delivers his people. I rather wish that instead of glorifying and praising, it said laughing when we're told what the shepherds did on returning from seeing the baby. Because in as much as the single greatest disjunction is the arrival of the Lord Jesus as the greater Isaac, and that announcement by the angels to the shepherds elicits from them enormous fear and dread, then they go and see the baby, and then they come back from seeing the baby, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It's not there in the text, 
But between the lines in my text, it says, and the shepherds were laughing with one another mm. at the sheer disjunctive <laughs> relief of the arrival of the greater Isaac. Yeah. And I think not just relief, but it's the surprise of, I mean, it, Isaac's birth is a joke that the, the, the future of the world uh, rests with Abraham and Sarah. The fulfillment of God's purposes for his creation rests with these two old people and with the fact that they have a baby in their old age. Mm. I think when Jim talks about this, and Jim Jordan talks about this, I think everyone should know that to stipulate, when I say Jim, I mean Jim Jordan. When Jim talks about this in his uh, lectures on Genesis, he talks about this as a God's joke on humanity, as it were. I wonder if the Psalm 2 isn't behind it also, because the part of the promise is that the descendants of Abraham will, they will uh, claim the gates of their enemies. So there might also be the laughter of future victory. There's the laughter of recognizing that this is already the Lord's triumph, even though at this point it just looks like a joke. Like, like the baby in Bethlehem. Is, mm. this, this is God's answer to the problem of evil, a baby. You know? But it really is, and that's the, God's joke on, on the human race. And the development of the theme of laughter also is something that helps us to see the development of the character of Isaac himself, that his name means laughter, and the different subtle ways that theme is explored throughout the text, whether that's the laughter of um, surprise or the laughter of disbelief, the laughter of joy, the laughter of um, possibly mockery or um, a laughter that threatens from outside or the laughter of a man with his wife in the case of Isaac and Rebecca. Each of these explores something of the development of his destiny in terms of his name and allow for the uncertainty of exactly what that specific laughter is in view, what specific sort of laughter is in view, allows us to see the way in which a character can develop relative to a defining trait. In the light of um, the Beatitude about uh, blessed are those who mm. weep for they shall laugh, um, what's going on at the end of Galatians 4 where um, obviously Isaac is, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paul is saying to the Galatian believers who are in Christ, the seed of Abraham, that though they are being persecuted, they've got reason to rejoice. Whether there is something about the sequence as well of uh, you're crying now, you're persecuted now, mm -hmm. you will laugh, you will be relieved relating to Isaac specifically. Hmm, interesting. So the, the, the thrust of that would be uh, the Lord will deliver you from your persecutors and you will experience the, the name that you already bear, which is Isaac, yes, uh, child of laughter, and you'll be relieved from that persecution and weeping uh, and, into laughter. And that playing out, what's happened to your mother, um, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Mm. So there's Sarah, and Sarah herself is vindicated from her, in inverted commas, persecutor mm -hmm. by the birth of Isaac. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the um, one other kind of twist on that would be, uh, as Alistair pointed out earlier, the, when, when uh, Ishmael is mocking Isaac, it's uh, the, the verb is the same verb that's the root of Isaac's name. 
He's Isaacing Isaac, which uh, gives us a hint of what the what the big deal is. I mean, if he's if he's just if they're just two boys teasing each other, uh, it seems like it's overkill to to send <laughs> to send Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. I mean, but if that when we get a full force of that verb, um, Ishmael is seeking to replace the replacement son. He he is the older son that's been replaced, like many older sons in in Genesis. He's the older son that's been replaced, and he's Isaacing Isaac suggests that he's trying to usurp that place. So now plug that into Galatians, and even the persecution itself suggests that they're the Galatian, the Gentile Galatian believers, they're playing the role in the plot of the first century. They're playing the role of Isaac, mm-hmm. uh, and the older brother, uh, the Jews who claim to, who have rejected Jesus and who claim to be the true heirs of the covenant, are mocking them, seeking to replace them. That's the persecution that's taking place. So even the persecution is identifying them as the laughter of God. And then you have the further experience and hope that the Lord will deliver them from the, from the, uh, from the persecution and, and bring them into the laughter of triumph. One other passage that we hadn't discussed, where I, a, a lovely passage in uh, Zechariah 8, uh, where Zechariah is envisioning a future uh, re- restored city. Zechariah is prophesying after the exile, and the temple has been under construction, and he's prophesying at a time when it's been interrupted and encouraging the people to get back to work on the temple. And what he envisions as a as kind of an ideal uh, urban landscape is old men and women sitting peacefully in the city squares, watching children laughing in the streets, which I always thought is the one of the loveliest descriptions of of a proper human society, a properly restored human society that the Bible offers us, partly because it's so mundane. That's part of the uh, that's part of the beauty of it. You know, it's the harmony of generations in the in the in the picture there, uh, and just the the sheer joy of children that they're safe, joyful, laughing in the streets. That's the that's the vision of the future that Zechariah lays out for Israel after the exile. The second question we want to address was submitted in this form. Why does Paul seem to associate temple and purity language with sexual behavior more so than other matters of conduct? And the questioner is uh, no doubt looking at uh, passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 6, which talk about sexual sin as a sin against one's own body. Don't you know that you're bought at a price? Don't you know that you're a temple of the Spirit? And brings up uh, the language of purity, holiness, and temple in connection with, with sexual sin. Um, and so that's that's one place in in Paul's letters where where that combination comes in. I think there are a number of different layers to this. One one that uh, came to mind for me was the the way that purity language works in the Old Testament and how that transfers into the New. And I'm uh, basing my thinking here partly on the work of Jonathan Clawens, an, a Jewish Old Testament scholar who's written a number of books on uh, the purity system, the Levitical system various dimensions of the Levitical system. And one of the things that Clawens points out is that purity language comes up not only in relation to ceremonial violations, bodily processes that make people unclean, uh, contact with dead bodies that makes somebody unclean, skin disease that makes you unclean. Uh, those are He classifies those as ceremonial impurities. But he also points out that in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Pentateuch, purity language is used 
to describe what happens to the land when certain sins are committed. So he calls that moral impurity. Um, and the specific sins that pollute the land are idolatry and the shedding of innocent blood and sexual sin. Uh, those are the three main ones that are land pollutions. And I think that I find the distinction between ceremonial and moral, I'm not as happy with. Uh, I think the ceremonial regulations have moral import. I think it'd be a mistake to separate those. So I think the maybe the preferable way to describe the distinction, the distinction that he's describing is there. Probably the preferable way to describe it is there are pollutions that pertain to the sanctuary, and those are there are pollutions that pertain to the land. And it's these moral acts of uh, particularly shedding of innocent blood, idolatry, and sexual sin that pollute the land. And those, those, that combination, those three pollutions seem to be brought into the New Testament pretty much uh, intact, not applied to land, but applied to the community uh, or, or to the body. You could say that human beings are being made from earth are land, or you could say Jesus Christ is now the true man, our true land. If we're in Christ, then we have to remain pure. So I'm thinking not just not of Paul so much as the early chapters of Revelation where in the letters to the churches, Jesus identifies porneia, uh, which is sexual immorality. And I think in Revelation, it probably has overtones of spiritual unfaithfulness. But in the first instance, it's sexual immorality. Porneia and idolatry are the two sins that will cause the Lord to bring judgment to the church. And I think that's an example of how uh, moral purity or land impurity uh, from the Old Testament system is being brought into the New Covenant and applied to the uh, community of the church and to the members of the church as, uh, as individually being temples of the Spirit. Perhaps it might also help to think about the relationship between the body and the temple more generally in Scripture, the temple and the tabernacle. Um, sometimes that can be seen in terms of Christ's own ministry. Christ talks about destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. That that connection between Christ's body and the temple. But even within the Old Testament, we see the temple or the temple or the um, tabernacle being described in body-like terms. As the temple or the tabernacle are built, they're built according to something like the pattern of a body, whether that's the um, two pillars representing feet or whether it's the placement of lampstands representing hands and fingers, um, whether it's the heart and the holy place, whatever it is, and the specific language that's used, shoulders, ribs, these sorts of things, connect those two things together. We can think about the high priest who is dressed in a way that is a, a sort of image of the or reflection of the tabernacle order. He's wearing, as it were, a tent and an externalization of what is internalized within the order of the tabernacle. When we get to the New Testament, I think we can also think about the close relationship between sexual relations and the, the body as something that is constituted by that within certain relations. So the body is related to other bodies, and we become one flesh with other parties through sexual relations. Um, it might also relate to the way that Paul is concerned to say that he baptized none of the people in um, 1 Corinthians 1, except for a few exceptions. 
because baptism is another example of something that the body is defined through a particular act or constituted in a particular relation. When we're thinking about our bodies and actions that are done that have the body as a direct end, whether that is the body being constituted in union with Christ, or whether it's the body being constituted in union with a partner, there is something that has a moral significance there that is distinct from the other sorts of actions that we might perform, as Paul talks about it, outside of the body. Actions that do not constitute us in the same way. So whereas Paul can teach, and that is something that can shape people, um, to baptize them is to risk suggesting a relationship between them and him that does not obtain in the body of Christ because we are baptized into Christ. And within Paul's teaching, I think there's a a deep understanding of how the body is constituted in relationship to Christ, in relationship to others. We are one body in Christ. We all participate in the the bread and the wine. We are all baptized into Christ. And then the question is, how could you take a body that is freighted with all that meaning and bring it into a constitutive relationship with a harlot? And unless we have a sense, I think, of the deeper positive meaning that he's giving to the body, we won't be able to see how he is leveraging that against the sinful practices of sexual immorality that he's challenging. And to pick up on that uh, about the positivity about the body, just to make, um, uh, I'm sure it's just sitting there, the point that Paul's use of purity language in relation to sexual sins, your uh, explanation just now, Alistair, of how sexual sins have the body as the direct end, um, that far from Paul's use of that purity language in relation to sexual sins being in denigration of the body, as though, oh dear, the, the body is the thing where we're most likely to be uh, dirty or unclean or things that we do with the body are most likely to be um, disgusting. Far from that, it's the opposite. It's the celebration of the significance of the body as the dwelling place of God uh, that means that this intense um, uh, set of words, this intense category of language is most applicable to acts of the body. To confirm the point that you both made about the uh, significance of acts that have bot- the body as the end, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 18, uh, flee immorality, porneia is the word there. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the uh, man who practices immorality sins against his own body. So there's a, yeah, there's a, a, a the, the, the sin targets the body of the sinner in a way that other sins don't. Mm. Um, so that that does that that's part of the premise of Paul's Paul's discussion, and I think that uh, the thing back to the categories that I was explaining from Clawins, I think that we put that in in uh, both in both in First Corinthians five and six and in Revelation, the toleration of sexual sin is seen as a as a grave danger to the church. Paul says that um, calls on the Corinthians to remove this this sexually immoral man from their midst. Uh, apparently, some of them are involved with prostitutes and he sees that as a danger to the church 
the same thing is, is in the letters to the churches in Revelation, that if this kind of pollution is tolerated in the church, then Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand from the church and leave it without light, bereft. And I think that, that um, uh, leaves us with uh, a great deal of concern about the state of many churches in our own time where sexual sin is not only ignored, tolerated, but sexual sin is celebrated and defended, uh, what kind of judgment lies in store for churches of that sort? I believe there's also, along with that, there's something about the basic phenomenology of our sexual relations with other people that is being expressed here. Um, When we think about someone who has been sexually abused or raped, there is a deep violation of that person that they feel very keenly in a way that's far more pronounced in in almost every single case than someone who is just beaten up for instance there is a violation of the person themselves in a far more intimate way and when we're thinking about the way that we approach sexual relations so often we are afraid of exposing the intimacy of the self which is something that is proper to that sort of sexual relation, that you are constituted in a sexual union with someone, but yet we're afraid of union, we're afraid of exposure. And so we're a society that has built so much around guarding ourselves behind sexual technique or through the sort of emotional and physical prophylactics that we establish to avoid bonding ourselves to someone else or exposing ourselves in a way that we might be affected by them. But within Paul's teaching here, I think he's saying that whether or not we're doing all these things, um, we are still exposed. We're still bringing ourselves into a constitutive relationship. And yet the gospel is about bringing us into a opening up our bodies to the presence of God in a way that is deep and true that will shape the way that we think about our bodies more generally, that we can't think of our bodies as things that can be closed off in those sorts of relations. Rather, our bodies are to be opened up to Christ, and as we're opened up to Christ, we will be far more aware of the danger of opening them up to other things. Within this context, he's not primarily just giving this negative account of don't do this, don't do that. But he's giving a deep account of how positive the body is within a Christian understanding. Our bodies are the limbs and organs of Christ. They are set apart for resurrection. They've been washed, they've been sanctified. And very often when we talk about the body, um, we just see it as an area of prescription and prescription. And yet for Paul's theology, it's something that is freighted with this great theological meaning. It's not just that we are the limbs and organs of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit in our bodies. It's where God himself is dwelling. And understanding it that way, I think it challenges us as Christians to direct God's word of grace to our bodies in the sacraments, in baptism and the supper. God is speaking to our bodies and declaring our bodies to be sites of his grace. So whatever we have had done to our bodies, whatever people might think about our bodies, whatever we might feel in terms of the mortality of our bodies, any of these things um, are eclipsed by the word of grace that he gives and his declaration that our bodies are his. They are the site of his dwelling. They're set apart for resurrection. They're the limbs and organs of his son and that we are 
accepted and loved and God wants to restore and preserve these bodies, not just to cast them off and save our souls alone. Robert Jensen talks about the body as the availability of the person, which uh, is a way of making the point you just made. And I also think of John Paul II's the phrasing that he uses in the theology of the body, which is that each of us is created with a spousal body. Uh, we're created male and female, and we're created for union with others, for fellowship with others, and particularly symbolized in the in marriage. Uh, so your your bodies are made with a fit to uh, engage and, and commune with another person. And uh, picking up, Alistair, on your uh, reflections on just how deep our bodily identity runs and goes, a friend of mine, Ros Clark, has been giving attention recently to body shame and although it's rather different from uh, the purity language that Paul uses in respect of sexual sin nevertheless simply to point out that there's a reason why even before sin we're told they were naked and not ashamed uh, as if there's some reason to have to point that out when we reflect upon the degree of shame or embarrassment, so this is a separate category from that of guilt. This is a category of the fear that we might be unacceptable. And that obviously that fear may on some occasions be well-grounded and justified, but in lots of cases, relating to our bodily appearance, bodily experience, bodily processes, there is that sense of I am or I might be unacceptable, uh, which associates with shame. Um, that's built into some of the Levitical law, almost as if God is using the existence of this personal nervousness or potential embarrassment to bring home uh, some wider points. But then it comes into, uh, Ros pointed out, uh, the way in which uh, the woman with the, um, the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5, um, that it would be known of her uh, what her condition was because of exclusion that she comes up from behind Jesus, almost as if her shame meant that she didn't want to have a face-to-face -face encounter, and that Jesus, in a, uh, with a wisdom which none of us um, could claim, and, and that takes an action which, therefore, uh, we would have to be extremely hesitant about. Namely, on having healed her, he invites her publicly to um, uh, declare what has happened and therefore to deal with uh, the past shame as well as that which brought it. Anyway, these are they, just a set of reflections about um, how embarrassed we are about our bodies, how conscious we are of them, whether it's facial disfigurement or whether it's um, menstruation or whether it's other emissions. 
uh, or whether it's toilet functions, there's an embarrassment about the body which simply underlines the depth of connection between our sense of our identity and our embodiment. And then that plays out in the gospel to our identity in Christ and our embodiment. And it's not surprising that dwelling place of God uh, purity categories come into play with very bodily sins. Where, where has Roz talked about that? Uh, well, she's talked about it in, in conversation, ah. and I trust very much that uh, it will reach um, uh, the public domain yes. through written materials yes. before too long. Yes, well, shout out to Roz, who has done uh, some of the best work on the Song of Songs that I know, that I believe is somewhere available yes. online. So uh, take a look at that. Uh, we're going to move on to the final question for this episode. Uh, we had ambitions to answer four, but I know we're just going to be able to answer three. Uh, the third one that we want to talk about is the question uh, of uh, homiletics. Can you describe Theopolitan homiletics? Uh, I would be curious to hear about your philosophy and theology of preaching, as well as what resources you would suggest for young ministers learning to preach. Well, uh, you can get some, some hints about uh, what that might sound like. Uh, from last week's podcast episode, uh, Rich Lusk, who's the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, uh, gave a uh, sermon on uh, Genesis 32 and Jacob wrestling with God, but took the opportunity to run through the life of Jacob and do it right <laughs> and, uh, and refute all the misinformation and slander that's been spread about poor old Jacob. That would be an example of, uh, of uh, the kind of preaching that uh, uh, people associated with Theop Theopolis do. I'll just throw out a few things and get reactions from the, the other two of you. One thing I'd want to emphasize is that preaching, preaching is done within a liturgical context. It's not the only thing that happens when the church gathers on Sunday morning. Uh, it doesn't have to bear and carry the full weight of a worship service. Uh, it doesn't have to do everything that needs to be done in a worship service. It doesn't need to convict us of sin. We've already had a call to confession and a declaration of forgiveness. A sermon might do that and might need to do that, but it doesn't have to. Uh, it doesn't need to raise us to some kind of pitch of joyful communion with Christ because we're going to do that when we come to the Lord's table. And in some ways, I don't want to pit word and sacrament against each other, but the Lord's Day worship service is marked by, uh, not by teaching, there are lots of events in the church that involve teaching. What marks the Lord's Day worship service is that it's a Eucharistic service. It's gathering at the Lord's table. Uh, that's what's unique about it. Um, it's gathering at the Lord's table on the Lord's Day. The word that's delivered is delivered in that context. And that, that puts some constraints on how you preach, what you want to say. It should relieve preachers from thinking, that they have to bear the full burden of every experience and everything that they want to communicate, everything God is doing in the service uh, weighs on their shoulders, on their on their sermon. It just doesn't. And when you see the worship service as a mini God's ministry to the church in all these variety of ways, then uh, you can there's some relaxation you can have about uh, what the sermon will have to do. Obviously, Theopolitan preaching is preaching that's based on the Bible. I personally despise an abundance of anecdotes in sermons, especially in churches like many churches in the present day, where the sermon is the one, one moment, one 
half hour, 45 minute period that you have during the week to teach God's word to the whole church. People come to Sunday school. Not everybody comes to Sunday school. Not everybody that comes to midweek Bible studies. Uh, this is the one time when you're speaking to the whole congregation. And I think it's a, a betrayal of pastoral responsibility to spend your time telling stories, unless they're Bible stories. I think it, it's a time for teaching scripture. Your uh, sermon should be based on scripture. They, don't, they shouldn't be exegetical lectures, but they should be based on your study of the, of the text. And they should be some kind of exposition and application of the text, growing out of the text. Let me say one, one other thing. This is a, uh, a grab bag of, uh, of beat peeves about sermons <laughs> so far. And maybe that's just what I have time to do. I do think that there's a difference. I found that there's a difference in the way that I deliver a sermon than the way that I deliver a, a, a lecture. And I've come to think of it. I don't know if this is a way to... This, this communicates to me. I don't know if it communicates to anyone else. When I'm lecturing, I'm calling my... Uh, the hearer's attention to some text or topic. If I'm lecturing on the Bible, I want them to be looking at the text with me, analyzing the text along with me. That's the stance that I'm taking. When I'm preaching, I want to deliver the text to the people. And the target is not so much to analyze what's on the page as to uh, speak to the people. Having analyzed what's on the page, speak that text to the people, making it real in their lives uh, suggesting ways that their life is illumined by what I'm saying, uh, illumined, corrected, refreshed, wh whatever, whatever kinds of you know the different different kinds of texts and different kinds of sermons have different kind of effects. But I want to deliver the text to the people, and so the people are much more the target than than the text is. All the study needs to be done, but the time the time of the sermon is not the time to be doing that study. Uh, the time of the sermon is to be based on the study, delivering the Word of God to the people of God. If you're celebrating the Supper every week, it makes a big difference, I think, in the way that you'll preach, because there will be built into the service this expectation of a transition between what you have been teaching or preaching to the celebration of the Supper and then out into the week. There is a transition there that encourages you to concretize, to relate very particularly the passage that has been studied within the sermon to people's lives and to the community and to understanding not just the text as something that might have some interesting moral lessons for us or parallels with our lives, but to understand ourselves as situated within the text, that we are the heirs and the executors of the biblical testament, that God has spoken in times past, and that those words relate to us, that these things were written to us, written for our example. Um, when we look at the story of the Exodus, when we look at the story of the kingdom, when we look at the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whatever it is, we're reading a story that has direct relevance to us. And I think celebrating it in the con reading in the context of the sacraments helps us to appreciate that, that we are the that we these are our forefathers that abraham is our father that we are people who are um those who are like the children of sarah and in these respects it helps us to read the bible in a very different way and i think that posture towards the text is something that 
a Theopolitan approach more generally to homiletics encourages. It's not just teaching you the meaning of particular texts. It's teaching you how to posture yourself in relationship to the text, to understand that we are situated within this narrative, not just as those who, as N.T. Wright has compared much preaching to, it's like people going through Pride and Prejudice and looking for hopeful parallels. That's not how we're reading the Bible. We are those who are part of the story, and we're thinking about the ways in which what has gone before has been written as an example for us and sheds light upon our situation. And that vital connection between the story of Israel and the story of the church, I think, is something that makes that work. And typology is exploring the lineaments of that those particular connections, the ways that things are bound together across time, and that our time is connected with what we read in Scripture. Beyond that, I think it's also helpful to think about Scripture as encouraging a relationship between the hearer and the authority of Scripture, that Scripture is very much encountered with the ear in the context of the sermon. And it's not supposed to be just the preacher giving their own um, theology in that context. We're supposed to elicit from the text what the text is saying to our context so that the text looks us directly in the eyes. And I've been in churches before where you'll attend over a period of a year and you hear the same five sermons just hung on different texts. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have an approach to scripture that is deeply attentive because that's part of what it means to uphold the authority of the text. And um, that the text is something that speaks with a distinct and often surprising and arresting voice to our context in a way that calls us to pay attention, to give heed and to obey. And then, as a result, it orients us. It gives us a sense of where we stand in the world, not just a, sen- a set of commands, but a deeper orientation that informs wisdom and wisdom's acts, which are often far more creative than merely obeying. Obeying can be a do this, don't do that approach, but wisdom is something that brings a sense of creation, of acting within time and needing to discern the difference between times and places and situations. And reading many texts alongside each other and recognising how scripture illumines itself, I think helps us in that task. And so I see that as the task of a Theopolitan homiletics. And I think a number of good examples could be given, but um, that might be for another time. I think I, I, just, I want to emphasize the point you made about um, you know what we could call application when when preachers think need to apply the text. It often takes the form of a set of do's and don'ts at the end of the sermon. So spend your week doing this. Don't spend your week doing this. I think those are appropriate at times, depending on the circumstances of the church, depending on the text you're preaching from. But I think you can preach in a way that is deeply applicable without ever using that kind of... You don't have to make that kind of conclusion, have that draw that kind of conclusion to make it applicable. Because you, what you want to do is, as you said, orient the people so that they recognize that they are part of the story that they're being told of in Scripture and it's being expressed and explained in the sermon. I, I've thought about it as the sermon is directed at least as much to the imagination as it is to the will. So you want to not only tell people, do this, but you want to 
give them, as uh, to use a, a Jordan-esque phrase, you want to give them new eyes to look at the world that they're living in, to look at their lives, to, to, see, to see things in their world in a different way or to see things they may have missed, they've been blinded to. That's just as applicable, there's just as much application as the do's and don'ts, even if you don't use the imperative voice. A couple of uh, practical comments flowing from what the two of you have just said. The first is simply to highlight the practical challenge that on the one hand, you don't want the sermon within the covenant renewal service of worship to have to bear the weight of the teaching ministry of the church. But on the other, Peter, you <laughs> rightly said, this is the one time as things are currently constituted, when uh, a pastor will have opportunity to speak to the entire congregation. And therefore, it will be in part about teaching scripture. Uh, so there's a tension there, and I'm not going to relieve or resolve it, simply state it. A second practical comment uh, from what the both of you have said is that Although, again, agreeing with you, Peter, that uh, the sermon within the context of uh, covenant renewal, where the Lord's Supper is on its way and confession and, and gospel assurance or absolution has already uh, proceeded, um, means that uh, the, that sermon doesn't have to bear the weight of uh, raising you to a pitch of joy or a pitch of despondency at your sin or whatever it may be. Nevertheless, the very fact that it's in that liturgical context, the very fact that we are part of the story, um, that we're inhabiting the scriptures as we're hearing a sermon in that context, means that there, there are more appropriate and, and relevant subjective dispositions for preacher and hearer, and some which are less appropriate and relevant. We have, I think, in listening in delivering and in listening to a sermon in that context the responsibility to cultivate the intense awareness of being in the lord's presence after all we've already ascended by that point in the service into the heavenlies we are here in the lord's presence we're here inhabiting the story and the text it is the lord himself who is speaking to us. And so although the way uh, the content of the sermon and the way it's delivered will communicate substantive cognitive content, it is an encounter. It's right that there should be more questions in a sermon, a, the question that requires the hearer to answer, at least internally. There should be more pauses. There should be a certain gravitas uh, because we are intensely in the presence of the Lord and he is speaking to us here now in the heavenlies. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.